All across America and around the world, this is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fossone. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. We also want to thank our latest national sponsor, Veteran Lending Council. It is a community dedicated to educating lenders, realtors, and veterans on the VA Home Loan Benefit Program. You can check them out on Facebook and other social media outlets. Today we're going to bring to you a couple of interviews that we did earlier um, on topics that are in the news, we had a chance to talk to a lieutenant colonel who recently retired out of the Army about his experiences, but more particularly about being uh, with NATO and um, inspecting the readiness of uh, Ukraine. Uh, he retired earlier this year before the Russian invasion started, so very timely. And then we're going to talk to a retired um, uh, service officer who she's now a political commentator, and she's going to talk about her uh, article about uh, why the current administration's uh, discussion about a green military is just nuts. So stick around. I think you'll enjoy both of these uh, conversations. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today John Fonts, uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired from the United States Army, spent 20 years uh, serving his country and recently retired. So we're going to talk about some uh, things in the news. But, John, welcome to Veterans Radio. Jim, thank you so much. I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here. Well, we've uh, got some mutual friends, and they said great things about you, so I'm looking forward to learning about your career and your background. But I understand... Uh, you went to high school here locally at Catholic Central and uh, then moved on to West Point. Uh, what made you go to West Point? Um, I think the most immediate answer was my brother also had been there. He was a 1989 graduate. And uh, so it was always in the back of my mind that I would consider perhaps going there. But also just my family has been a very veteran service-oriented family. My dad had four brothers. They all served in the military. My mom had three brothers. They all served in the military. 
I had one uncle who served in World War II, one in the Korean War, and one in Vietnam. And so it was just something that my parents were exposed to and they thought was a very high and noble calling. And I saw how my family reacted to my brother's service. He served during the Desert Storm. Um, and we decorated the house. Um, we watched the news and we paid close attention to it. And it was a great party when he came home. And, uh, and he always spoke highly of it, the Army as well as West Point. And he, like everybody else, said, it's really hard. It's really challenging. And I think I've always just been kind of drawn to the, anyone who likes to throw out a challenge or a level of difficulty. I just like to take it on. Well, the, you never thought about going to the Naval Academy? What academy? I've never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a long family service uh, to the Army that the Founts uh, family has, and that's wonderful. Um, it's really amazing, and probably when you went in, you didn't expect to spend 20 years, I don't think. I did not. I did not expect to spend that long. I remember even thinking hard about, ooh, five years was the, as it's still the requirement once you graduate. I thought, that's that's kind of long. <laughs> uh, I guess I didn't think 20 was long. Well, and, and uh, your, I don't believe, was your brother a, a career service member? Or? No, no, he, uh, he got out at his uh, five-year mark uh, and, and moved on. Well, again, it's, it's one of those things. You get these great jobs. You get these great uh, people you work with uh, on important issues, and one year rolls into the next, and you look up and say, hey, I really enjoyed the 20. But let's go back. Um, tell us a little bit more about your career in the infantry and ultimately into special forces and on to some other places after that. So give us a thumbnail sketch of this. Certainly. Well, I graduated and was commissioned on the 2nd of June, 2021, so 21 well, years ago today. Well, there you go. Yeah, nice coincidence. And, uh, of course, the world changed greatly a few months later in September. Um, and so I was in the infantry officer captain's career uh, basic course uh, when that happened down at Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, and things got, uh, you know, very interesting very quickly. I finished that up and graduated and went on to ranger school and then immediately reported to Fort Bragg, North Carolina uh, in the summer of 2002. And we immediately saw shortly after a tensions building in the Middle East. Uh, and as war loomed in, in January, we got orders to go to uh, Iraq as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Um, and so I spent eight months as a rifle platoon leader uh, during my time there at, uh, in Iraq, um, spending most of my time there in Baghdad, uh, really as a 23 year old kid trying to learn every day what, what I needed to be doing. It was a very daunting task for a young infantryman at the time. Uh, but you know, my platoon of 40 guys, uh, we were all kind of doing it together. Well, and, and that's what I want you to talk a little bit about that because, you know, you're freshly minted out of the, uh, West Point, you're all of a sudden in charge of 40 men and not just, hey, you know, making widgets on the line. This is life and death stuff. So one of the things the military really gives you is this early exposure to leadership, doesn't it? Yes. Um, it's It starts very early on. Uh, you're responsible for everything you do um, as, a, as a young cadet. 
And when you get further on at West Point, and I would later go back as a TAC officer doing the same thing to other cadets, um, they try to put the onus of decisions on you uh, and let you make it as a leadership laboratory should be. Um, and so you get used to making those decisions and you get used to making some bad decisions and you get used to learning how to rebound or become a little bit more resilient toward those decisions. You're going to make bad ones. That's what things like Ranger School and the basic course are for. They're going to put you in situations where you're going to have to lose something no matter what decision you make. There is no perfect answer um, in these scenarios because in those kind of situations, um, you got to sometimes have to figure out amongst all the chaos you know, how to get out of the situation or how to get out of this environment as best you can. Um, and I think everyone knew that. And everyone knew that there was a lot on my shoulders as well as theirs. And I think it fostered a lot of open communication. We were light infantry, but you really couldn't do that in Baghdad in order to cover down on our sector. So all of a sudden now we have vehicles. Um, and we hadn't really even trained for that. I mean, vehicles were just things that took us to the forest so they could drop us off before it started raining. <laughs> And here we are trying to figure out new SOPs, new ways and uh, TTPs to operate as a light infantry unit with vehicles inside an urban environment. Um, and so I think just the openness that everyone had about we've, we've got to put our heads together to figure out the best way uh, to do this uh, really built uh, some trust amongst us and my squad leaders. And it was it was a daily occurrence. We sat down every day and just looked at ourselves and say, hey, how are we doing? We're we doing good. All right. And I think we should be doing something different. And it led to some good conversations. Well, you had multiple overseas assignments. Um, so uh, you were in Iraq, and I think it was 2003 and four, overlapping. Um, tell us the other two that you had. Uh, yeah, there was the a second deployment to Iraq during their first elections, uh, which was a very interesting time to be there to see them uh, go out and vote for the first time to, to set their destiny. Um, I also then would transition over to the Special Forces in 2005 um, and went to 3rd Special Forces Group out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina as well. And uh, we did a, a trip to Tajikistan, uh, training their border guards. They share a border with Afghanistan, and the opium was being transmitted between those borders pretty porously. Um, so we were training up those uh, individuals. We had 534 Tajiks with us. Um, and just teaching them some, uh, some border patrol maneuvers. And then 2009, my detachment, my special forces 12 man detachment went to RC East and partnered with the Afghan commandos. There was only six Afghan commando units in the entire country and we were fortunate to get one of those and they were tapped for the, uh, better training, better pay and the more hazardous duties and missions. So, uh, we did operations all throughout RC East which is the entire eastern side of Afghanistan. For, um, for the, John, for, sense, but, uh, pretty good. John, for those who might not understand what special forces means in the Army, can you give them an explanation here for Veterans Radio? Sure. So the United States Special Forces is the only unit authorized by Congress to conduct unconventional warfare. Um, and we focus there a little bit on building up other nations and what we were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan is what we call FID, which is Foreign Internal Defense. A Special Forces team is a 12-man self-sustaining team uh, with highly skilled people in weapons, uh, engineering, medical, and communication specialists, as well as intel specialists and some planning specialists like myself. And doctrinally, we're 
supposed to be able to train up to a battalion size level, which is why we had so many Tajiks and why I had an entire battalion of Afghans. Um, and our job really is to work ourselves out of a job, as we say. We try to train them up to do their own planning, train them up to do their own rehearsals, equipment maintenance, logistics, and hopefully as we continue to build them up, we can take a lesser role back. That's our goal. We try not to be the face of the operation. We really try to push them forward and keep them in front. Um, and it takes some specialized training to, to have that kind of patience because sometimes you want to do things yourself because it might be the easiest way to do it. But a special forces team is going to build up over time those skills inside that unit so they can walk away one day and no longer be needed, hopefully. Well, and this fits into a little bit of what your uh, areas of study were. Um, at uh, West Point, you, you obtained a degree in psychology, and you also graduated from Columbia University with a master's in organizational psychology in 2011. So this whole thinking about it and how to motivate people and organizationally and the psychology of all of that would sort of fit right into your role uh, in these assignments, I would think. Yes. In fact, it was uh, President Eisenhower who was instrumental in bringing psychology and a few other uh, disciplines to United States Military Academy uh, when they were not existing. Um, and I think he, of course, understood greatly the impact that leaders can have just by their presence um, and just by understanding who you're leading. The emotional intelligence perhaps was not necessarily always a well-defined term early on in those days, but he did a lot to to push that. And now all the TAC officers that go to help train these 4,000 cadets at the United States Military Academy get that degree in organizational psychology through Columbia. They have a wonderful partnership and huge support. But that's because the entire goal was to, to help these individuals, again, make their decisions on their own and take ownership of those decisions. But each decision affects people so much differently that you've got to kind of have that um, flexibility uh, and patience to understand that you're dealing with a different person and trying to meet them at their level of how they understand it and to push them and find where they don't understand themselves, but to give them uh, the support to go ahead and make those decisions and learn from them. Well, I think many of us, uh, I have an engineering undergrad, see things uh, too black and white, two plus two equals four, but it's uh, when dealing with human beings, it's often not quite uh, so uh, regimented and black and white, so I, I can really see how this fits into being able to work with uh, so many different types of people all around the country. And you had an interesting... We, we could talk all day on that subject alone, but I want to move along to something that you had an interesting opportunity to work on in your last four years um, with uh, the Army. And as you said, you just retired, so this is all pretty fresh stuff. And you, you were assigned to NATO, and t talk to us about uh, the role that you were in at NATO and, and sort of what you've learned about its, its role in Europe and uh, uh, some of the things in the news today about Ukraine. Certainly. Um, we were getting near the end of our career, and my wife had studied abroad in college and really wanted to go to Europe. And so I looked at a few bases. And this NATO Special Operations Headquarters in Mons, Belgium, was, was a, it's a small place, not well known, only really been around since 2010. Um, and so we saw the opportunity to work with many different nations as and live amongst many different nations as probably the, the greatest opportunity we could find. 
and we speak about psychology, again, just even when it comes down to cultural differences, um, you, you've got to be in tune to that as well, not just in amongst Americans, but in amongst different uh, nationalities. And it is different from Western Europe to Eastern Europe in terms of, you know, personal space or, um, you know, hierarchy and things like that. And so we went there and I got into the exercise planning realm. And I thought that was going to be interesting because I got to travel around and also do some actual exercises and actually get really active in, in some of these nations and help build them up. And then my last two years, I was the director of the exercises and then also took on evaluations and assessments. I had an office only of about 11 people, but a Turk, uh, uh, a Spaniard, a, a Brit, uh, a Hungarian, an Italian, a Romanian, and a Lithuanian and a Pole. And it was really cool. Um, and we sit there and we put our heads together and try to figure out, you know, how to make a plan for this nation to exercise themselves, figure out their, figure out their training objectives and meet those things and become interoperable with NATO standards. That was basically what our office did. You have a lot of nations that can do things according to their own standards. But and if we want to have a NATO mission together, we've got to have some common standards, some common vernacular and some common systems. And so that was what we were doing. So every year we were training up a different nation to be the response force. And the, the NATO response force is that in the event of an Article 5, which is the article that says an attack on one is an attack on all, were to be uh, voted on, there's got to be some nation ready to go 10 days notice to move. And that's what we were training up each year, testing their systems, testing their procedures. And then different nations would provide battalion-level units to this force. It wouldn't just be that nation. Well, I was there. Poland was one of the nations, and they were the framework nation, meaning in terms of special operations, if they were needed, Poland would be the headquarters. It would be a, uh, a pole in charge of all of the special operations. And they get units from all the different countries. And they had been a big, big sponsor of Ukraine. And so in 2019, Ukraine came forward and said, hey, we want to put forward a battalion for the NATO response force. And as far as I know, it made a lot of people kind of scratch their heads asking, like, well, do they have to be part of NATO to be part of the response force? And the answer really was no. Um, and so they absolutely could be part of the NATO response force. So they put in a formal offer of uh, about 2,000 individuals to be evaluated uh, along NATO standards. And so we started making a few trips to Brovery uh, near Kiev and working with the Ukrainian Special Operations Command. And it was great. You could see that uh, for this, it was a big deal. It was a big deal for them. They've had some history of trying to join the EU, putting their fingers out, to, feelers out to see about NATO. And it's been a, a tough time for them in some regards, especially in 2014 when they missed joining the EU. And then shortly after in 2015, when they lost Crimea as well. And so this was serious business for them. And they took it extremely seriously. And they brought us out. They sat us down. They had what we would definitely call from an American standpoint, uh, austere conditions and uh, rudimentary equipment. But their will was uh, unparalleled uh, to get it right. Uh, the stakes, I think, were higher for them than perhaps some of us that were enjoying being in NATO. Because even though they were part of the response force, they were still were not part of the alliance. John, could you could you talk yeah. about the... You know, we, we view our military, uh, particularly the officers and the NCOs, as a, as a real professional core. Can you comment about the 
professionalism and the degree of education and training that you saw among uh, both NATO countries, but also uh, somebody like Ukraine? Sure. Um, yes, the there are stark differences, and it's hard to, to generalize without perhaps making someone say, hey, you're forgetting about me. But in general, you know, Western Europe has has seen some longer years of development of their their militaries, whereas the Eastern European, just their boundaries and their um, geography has changed. Um, I mean, drastically. I mean, starting from 1989 um, and then when Yugoslavia broke up. So some of these nations are quite new and they don't have like myself, who, you know, my uncles and my grandfather's. You know, we're in very professionalized armies and we keep a lot of the same units and we kept a lot of the same bases and we kept a lot of the same everything while also improving upon it and handing it down from generation to generation. You'll see a lot of times in the eastern side of Europe that there's still a Russian mentality. Um, some nations will recognize it. Some nations don't recognize it as much, in my opinion. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the Soviet mentality of how they outline and in that History in that history for them, officers are considered of a higher class and are considered perhaps they are less open to uh, candid feedback, something that we will value excessively in the United States Army. Um, you know, even uh, former Secretary uh, Bob Gates saying, hey, listen, you know, your leaders, the greatest thing they need from you is your honest feedback. Because they're trying to lead you, and that's what they're supposed to be doing. And if you don't tell them how you're how you're doing, then you know they're not going to be able to produce the product that they're supposed to be out there doing. In the eastern parts of of, of Europe, I have found that it is it is a little bit more, a uh, little bit less welcomed to to question authority. Um, that's definitely one takeaway I took. When it came to Ukraine, they had the same thing, but I think they also owned it, and they also kind of wanted to get away from it. When I went there, one of the first things they put up was an organizational chart of who's in their exercises branch. And just for one example, we looked at it, and part of it was a sniper. And, you know, exercise branches, you know, you're training exercises, and there might be an aspect where you got to train on a sniper, but why do you have the sniper in there? He can just be part of the unit. And they said, oh, well, that's an old Soviet uh, line of block chart. Like every unit had to have a sniper. It was, you know, something to be regarded as special to be the sniper. So we've kept it. And then we kind of sat there for a little while and asked a few more questions. And by the end, they're like, yeah, we, we probably need to get rid of that. Yeah, we don't need <laughs> and, that uh, standalone block. Yeah. Yeah, we probably don't need a separate guy who is focused on, on being a sniper when our job is to, you know, organize, resource, and execute training exercises um, let me so they're open to those kind of things and they're all looking to move away from anything that they might attribute to an old soviet mentality so you, you you're in this job at nato for on exercises and training and you've worked with poland and you've worked with ukraine and you retire and two months later all hell breaks loose uh and uh, russia invades ukraine a, were you, I guess, surprised, but as most people were, but maybe you foresaw something. And, and kind of B, what, what reaction did you have to how this started and now 100 days later or something, how it's playing out? Sure. I have to admit that uh, I think I'm like uh, a large majority of people 
especially even those that were in my headquarters, that I did not think we would get to the point of invasion. And I said that if we did, it would just be a small land grab for some of the already identified areas as Russian separatists. Um, that's really how I felt. And clearly it wasn't right. Um, and I can't tell you uh, the foggiest of why he has uh, taken such a prolonged interest in trying to win this war with Ukraine. Um, and so I was caught off guard. Uh, I know some people weren't. I'm sure there were some people that were that saw it coming. Um, but, uh, you know, we talk about in America and like, hey, have, what, have an end game, you know, a withdrawal plan in mind. And I don't think he had it. I think he thought it would be easier to get in and control the country. Um, and the Ukrainians have proven to be pretty resilient, uh, pretty staunch in their their love of freedom and their desire to get out of this. And eventually they've, they've you know, mentioned they want to join NATO. And I don't think that's really the biggest problem that uh, Russia was facing with Ukraine. But they, for whatever reason, decided that they were going to go in with this much force. And I think the initial stall we saw was not planned for. Um, I don't think the troops were quite ready for it. You saw there was a corridor open, humanitarian corridor open from Ukraine to Russia for those who wanted to come to back to Russia. And everyone thought that was kind of crazy, but it's pretty established now in the open uh, source intelligence that Russia had to do that just to resupply their forces because they were running so low on ammunition and gasoline because some of the troops didn't even know they were going to be going to war. They thought they were going to an exercise. As an, ar- they really it up. as an army guy in this NATO position on exercise and training, I'm just curious whether or not that also involved naval forces because at, in Ukraine we've seen the fight is really has been you know focused on Maripol and maybe Odessa. And maybe that's what they're really after is that those naval ports. Um, does, does NATO have a naval component and exercise and work in that regards? They do. NATO has a uh, maritime component command out of, um, uh, the great, out of Great Britain. And MARCOM, as they're called, uh, takes part of these exercises as well. Uh, I, I was solely on the special operations side, but every time we did the NATO response for certification, I would end up being in Norway in a bunker and, you know, directing the special operations side of the training objectives. Right next to me would be a MARCOM guy directing the naval side of it. And uh, we did exercises. Trident Javelin 17 was a heavy uh, exercise in and around um, the Mediterranean Sea and as well as the Baltic Sea in the exercise. So we we Rehearse that, practice that, get those protocols down for how a uh, amphibious assault would go down, it, using special forces to potentially clear beachheads or neutralize targets on a potential landing site. Fascinating to talk to somebody who was on the ground for NATO, looking at some of these issues and game planning exercises that uh, certainly would have uh, had a, a red army involved, maybe not called Russia, but conceptually. Um, do you have a prediction on how this ends? 
Uh, I have a tough time making a prediction because my first prediction turned out to be wrong. So <laughs> I don't want to go over two. I hear you. Um, it's fair enough. I don't think there are many commentators or or uh, military experts who who at this point are comfortable predicting because it's not gone the way anybody thought. Yeah, I um, but I mean, I, I'm I'm willing to state my opinions and knowing that there's just not the best guess I can come up with with listening and talking to others. Uh. If we're still going this late in the game, uh, it's going to be a protracted time. It's going to be some time. If we continue to only support Ukraine through um, external means, um, which I think we will, and I think it's the right thing because I think having Ukraine stand on their own right now uh, is going to be more beneficial for them and for security in Europe in the long, long run um, than anything else. Uh, because then it's going to tell those that might uh, face trouble with with Russia that, hey, we have we have seen what you are capable of and found wanting, and maybe it kind of reduces their ability to bully, <laughs> our ability to strong arm people into things. At the same time, we don't we don't need to cut Russian people off from everything resource wise. It's going to be a tough thing because it's really not between us and the Russian leadership. And uh, and for Vladimir Putin, between him and his his oligarchs, uh, he's they're gonna have to figure some things out. The dangerous course of action really is if 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 he thinks that this is the only way to save face is to continue on. Um, what is he willing to do in order to make sure that he at least saves some face? My my hope would be that the best we could perhaps get out of this, if we don't want to involve ourselves further, is to take some of the areas that are Russian separatist areas concede them and then draw those lines and then enter NATO, enter Ukraine into NATO with those new lines. It would be tough for a Ukrainian. They probably hate to hear me say that they really would. But again, just like when we say, you know, when you're as a cadet trying to figure out, Hey, you got a choice to make here in the woods. And by the way, you're not going to get out of here probably with some casualties. What's the, what's the path of least, you know, danger for you to take yeah there's no good there's no good decision as you say no there's no 100 percent solution here so we got to figure out um if we don't know what they're after if we're not really sure i'm sure some people have some great ideas we've got to figure out what we can hand them now to get this done and get this over so there's bloodshed that stops resources start going back and flowing and the average person average citizen is is not suffering as much as they are because every day it goes on for us it's another news story every day it goes on for them it might be another day without food or yeah. another day without yeah. petroleum or something like that and so it can be it become very dangerous in the long run well that gives you a little bit of a view on nato and its role in eastern europe and the views of somebody who recently exercised with special operations in Ukraine and um, maybe a little more insight into what's going on there and how the heck to get out of it. After the a word from a, a few of our sponsors, we're going to come back and talk about uh, the so-called green military. I think you, you might find this one a little humorous uh, based on your experiences with uh, the United States military. Hang on. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative, maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. Even small actions can make a world of difference. If you know a veteran in crisis, please call the Veterans Crisis Line, 800-273-8255. 
800-273-8255. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. This is PTSD Awareness Month, and we appreciate everything that the VA does for our veterans who are suffering with uh, PTSD and all that our VSOs do, and we have VSO sponsors, including the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles, Chapter 310 in Ann Arbor, VFW Graf O'Hara, Post 423, and the American Legion, uh, Post 46, also in Ann Arbor, and everything that they're doing to help veterans who are dealing with uh, PTSD. So every now and again, you got to find a little humor in this stuff, and uh, I think the uh, following... We'll give you just that, something to chuckle about. We had the opportunity to talk to uh, Kathleen Cat Anderson, who served 20 years in the United States Air Force. She retired as a senior master sergeant. We'll get some of her history here. But what caught my eye was an article that she wrote, uh, being able to give her opinion that the green military is nonsense. And I think you'll get quite a chuckle out of this. So uh, enjoy. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Kathleen Anderson. She is a United States Air Force retiree after, fresh one actually in the last year, after uh, almost 21 years, uh, retired out as a senior master sergeant. We'll talk about that a little bit, but Kathleen, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about your career, but uh, you now have a role as a journalist and a political commentator, and it's one of those articles on the uh uh, the green military that caught my fancy and we're going to talk a little bit about but why don't we start with how did a nice girl like you end up spending 21 years in the united states air force <laughs> yeah you know um and you say a nice girl like me because you just don't know me very well yet <laughs> uh so i'd love to say you know that it was i enlisted out of like a deep sense of service uh but i think a lot of people my generation uh, that joined before 9-11. You've got some that joined, you know, because their family members had been in and, and mine had been in as well. But mine was really out of kind of a lack of options, to be honest. Uh, I had a great childhood, but we didn't quite have enough money to send me to college. And while I was an above average student, I didn't quite have the grades for a full scholarship. And to be honest, uh, college just wasn't really something I was thinking about when I was you know, young and 17. And so I decided to enlist. Uh, but I will say that I re-enlisted because I fell in love with it. I love traveling the world and doing exciting things and meeting all sorts of different kinds of people. And so it definitely grew on me over time. As did your education. You uh, got a bachelor's of political science from American Military University. Uh, you picked up additional education at Syracuse University in uh, politics and civil engage civic engagement and ultimately some studies at George Washington University uh, College of Professional Studies again in the in the political management area and, and government so uh, you know we all go through that period where like we we want we don't want any more schooling then geez I can get more schooling this is great <laughs> and that sort of <laughs> happened to you I take it <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I got my bachelor's degree and I took a little bit of a break and 
you know, kind of had also hit one of those roads where you're like, you don't really, you're not quite sure what you want to do. You know, I kind of flirted with being a teacher and thought about getting my master's in education, thought of maybe I'd be a history teacher somewhere and then realized I don't really like having to follow a curriculum. And so probably education's not my strong suit. Um, and in the military, you know, they try and kind of like steer you to get a master's in what your your MOS or your AFSC was. And so being a financial manager by trade, there was a lot of pressure to get an MBA. And, you know, I applied to go to University of Nebraska to get my MBA and I ended up not getting accepted, which when I found out, you'd think I'd be bummed, like bummed, but I was actually really relieved. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God I don't have to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. And no offense to University of Nebraska, go Huskers. Um, but MBA was just not something I was excited about. And so I was really lucky to kind of stumble ac- across the master's degree in political management from GW. And I knew instantly that that's, that was my jam. I've always loved politics and government and American history. And I was like, I feel like that's really, really where I need to go. So yeah, it was a great experience. It was a really good school. And over time, your uh, duties in the Air Force uh, evolved into resource and financial management and uh, senior leadership positions. Um, and they tell us a little bit about where that took you. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I honestly didn't have much of a passion for my AFSC. Uh, but I enjoyed working with airmen. Uh, I enjoyed being a supervisor. And so that led me to get kind of steered in a senior leadership direction within the Air Force. And so I transitioned from, you know, doing, you know, the, the bean counter, the money counter to becoming what we call a group superintendent. So a senior enlisted leader. Um, which was both like the most rewarding job I had in the military and the most stressful <laughs> job I had. Uh, but I loved it. And that's really what kind of propelled uh, my like the last five years of my career. Uh, and then I ended up being able to make senior master sergeant at 18 years, uh, which was quite quite an achievement. I was very blessed to be able to make that rank um, and then decided that it was time to retire at 20. So. Yeah. Well, along the way, and I want you to tell some background on it because I couldn't find any, um, you received, among other awards in your uh, illustrious career, the Bronze Star. Tell, tell us a little bit about that uh, meritorious service. Yeah, yeah. So I spent a lot of time deployed, actually, and, and people always kind of seem surprised by that because when you say that you, you, know, you served in the Air Force, people immediately like, think you were a pilot. Um, and then when you when you tell them that you weren't, there's always that kind of like, oh, disappointment. <laughs> uh, but uh, I actually spent quite a bit of time deployed. And one of my deployments, the one that earned me the Bronze Star, I was it was one of my times in Afghanistan. And so I worked with very special teams of, of individuals who are trained to do a very special, unique missions. And um, I I've always been more excited about my deployments than probably my home station work because I like to be able to really focus in. And when you're deployed, there's nothing like really focusing on the J-O-B, so to speak. So um, without getting into too many details, I was just a very focused uh, resource manager for that group and uh, helped 
make sure that a lot of very difficult missions were able to get accomplished. So, Well, part of the was, reason I ask is, is just what you said. Everybody goes, oh, Air Force pilot. Oh, yeah. but I mean, you, you can't have special operations. You can't have uh, uh, other specialized uh, duties of, of uh, airframes without making sure all the stuff that supports it shows up where it's supposed to and on time. Otherwise, you end up like an Ar- a Russian Army tank division that runs out of <laughs> petrol. Um, so, so can you elaborate a little more about what resource management is so that those who uh, are going, I thought only warfighters went to the front line, get a better idea? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we end up calling it kind of money is, is its own weapon system, so to speak. So, uh, you know, you can't really get anything done in this world without having to spend some cash. And uh, that includes operating a war. And, you know, when you're doing resource management, that's all matter of beast, whether it's moving money or using money to purchase supplies or moving supplies uh, very closely related to like your logistics folks in that realm as well. Um, you, you know, it's you can have a highly trained special operator or highly trained, you know, fighter pilot. But none of that stuff works unless somebody's paying those bills, unless somebody's making sure that all of the equipment is where it needs to be. Um, and then sometimes you, you know, there are things that you purchase that aren't necessarily tangible either. So there's there's nothing in this world that's free to include goodwill and, co- and cooperation. <laughs> so we, we get the drift. But I, I want people to think about that because, again, you just tend to think of the warfighter or the pilot without uh, realizing that there are really important jobs sitting behind that to make that to all work. So let, let's yeah. turn to the new venture, which caught my eye, which is you are now a uh, political commentator and writer, journalist, uh, freelance journalist, and you recently wrote an article called Biden's Green Military is Absolute Nonsense. And before <laughs> we get into that, Talk a little bit about how freeing it is to now be able to express your opinions unfettered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, can you, you know, can you tell from that title that I have a hard time forming an opinion? Yeah, right? really, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so this new venture has really been very exciting and very new. You know, I didn't study to be a, you know, I didn't study classic journalism or anything like that. Uh but obviously, from my civilian education, it's easy to tell I have a passion for civics and politics and news and all of that. And so, you know, I love serving my country, uh, but it, it, it can be difficult, right? Like, you know, you can vote. And that's that's really kind of where that ends. It was funny when I would take my political management courses at GW, everybody in my class had, you know, an extensive background, you know, you'd have to talk about what you've done in politics and they were campaign managers or staffers or legislative aides. And then there'd be little old me that would say like, oh, I vote. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> and I can't tell you re- about the rest. Yeah. Right. Right. And so to be retired and to be able to freely, you know, engage in, you know, political thought and, and critique and to actually have other people read it and be interested in it is very freeing, but still can also be a little uh, a little jarring. I still have my moments where I'm like, Ooh, oh, wait a second. I can say that now. <laughs> I can be open with my opinion. So, yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs> well, this was right around Earth Day where all kinds of people were saying all kinds of things about, you know, saving the planet. 
and and one of them uh, was the president of the United States, who said, um, "quote We're going to start the process where every vehicle in the United States military, every vehicle, is going to be climate friendly. Every vehicle, I mean it." Close quote. <laughs> and I suspect it's that quote that got your brain stimulated, and you said. Wait a minute! I got to talk about this. So tell us, tell us what uh, what went through your brain, resulting in this uh, uh, explanation that this is absolute nonsense. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's having to deal with with money for so long while I was in the service, and then just basic common sense. Seeing that, and and I watched his his speech. I just thought, man, this is none of this makes any sense, nor is it really something that I think we need to really focus on, to be honest, when it comes to defense. And anybody that's been in the service recently should be aware and be able to attest to the fact that the Department of Defense has been working on energy efficiency for at least the last two decades while I was in. I mean, anything that was going to get purchased, you needed to make sure that it was as energy efficient as possible and and things like that. And so, you know, the idea that every single military vehicle was going to be green made no sense to me. They, you know, I thought, as in, are all up armored vehicles going to be electric now? Like, how are you going to, you know, how are you going to, well, hold on a second, bad guys, let me plug in, let me plug in my Humvee real quick. We'll be there in a bit, you know. It just didn't make any sense to me. And then when you talk about military vehicles, that's all manner of beasts, like aircraft and ships. And it's just a ridiculous notion. Well, the the political cartoon that went with the article was, uh, I thought, captured it when it, you know, it's it's an F-35 and it says ETA on the charge. And and there's a Tesla sign and it says about six months. Um, You know, it it is a... uh, you, you can make broad statements, but when you've been there and you know the details, um, it's kind of a different thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think uh, I had quoted the vice president who made a joke somewhere about, you know, the Marines, uh, you know, mer- female Marines being excited to not have to carry around big 20 pound yes. batteries to just be able to have like a rolled up solar panel. Um and I thought, gosh, like if a 20 pound battery was the only thing you had to worry about when you're lugging around hundreds of pounds of gear. <laughs> and especially when you're in the, you know, the heat of combat, I don't, I really don't believe that is on the minds of Marines, whether they're men or women. I mean, I, I wasn't a Marine, obviously, but. <laughs> yeah, she said this, I know the, that wasn't my concern. <laughs> uh, your art, article says the vice president mentioned that uh, at the Naval Academy that, uh, boy, just, you know, these solar panels, that's, boy, that's going to make every female Marine feel so much better. Um, yeah. it, it, it just becomes a bit of a caricature, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does. And I'm not sure that that, you know, I'm sure it's meant to be a joke of some sort, but I'm not sure it would land very well. You know, like I know as a as a female in the service, I was very proud of the fact that I carried all my own gear. And the last thing you want to be kind of viewed as is like too weak to carry your things. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I just uh, I'm not not quite sure that their joke writers are quite on the on the ball there. But 
Well, I worry more yeah. about their policy writers uh, that, uh, you know, if this if these statements were really just to be a joke, it'd be great. If it was uh, if it's to shape policy, it just sort of makes you wonder how much they really understand what the uh, what military equipment's all about. Um, yeah. And and it's easy to say we should protect Mother Earth while fighting future wars, but uh, I think as we've now seen in Ukraine, uh, war fighting is about breaking things, not about protecting Mother Earth. So, um, yeah, whole whole different kind of problem. You you also uh, got a chance, uh, and and this is the I, I suppose life of a political commentator is uh, there's something in the world every day that gives you a chance to express your opinions and uh, you wrote an article on historic court martial of air force general could be a sign of things to come can you and that was done again at the end of april here uh regarding the court martial of major general william t cooley could you explain kind of not so much what he did wrong although it's uh, been in the general press but sort of how what your hope is that comes out of this yeah definitely so you know, one of the things I try and look for uh, with the pieces that I that I do, you know, you always want to cover, you know, anything that's big news. Uh, but I think it's important um, to cover the stuff that just doesn't get enough coverage or that especially, you know, I tend to cover the military beat, if you will. So things that maybe non-military background folks would really understand. And so there's so much to this particular instance that I think is fascinating and can provide some hope in the in the future. Uh, you know, in, in my article, I mentioned, you know, with the NDAA that was signed, you know, a lot of people might not realize that sexual harassment wasn't a crime in the military. And, you know, sexual harassment tends to lead to other more egregious things, you know, whether it be sexual assault, rape, or, you know, like in the case of Vanessa Gillen, um, where you're actually murdered, right? And so, you know, there's a there's a stigma and they talk about it a lot if you've been in the military and especially as a as a female in the military, it can be very difficult to come forward if you've been a victim, and then especially if you are a victim from somebody who's in your chain of command. Uh and you know, in this case, this is a major general. And so I think finally, thanks to in part Vanessa Gillen's family and lawmakers paying attention to this and seeing that, like, you know, we're in, you know, the 2020s right now. And and, you know, if you're sending your young daughter into the military, the percentage of chance that they might be you know, stigmatized by this is pretty alarming. And it's probably about time that we start addressing this more. And so I really I thought it was really interesting that finally there was, you know, this historic court martial, you know, right on the heels of the NDA being NDAA being signed in December. And then, of course, you know, back when with Vanessa Gillen, uh, that movement. Uh, so I just thought it needed a little extra oomph. Uh, and so we did an article on it. Well, I think that was useful in that regards because the National Defense Authorization Act you know, which always gets packed with all kinds of interesting things that you really have to go through the act each year to go. Did they put anything interesting in here? You know, besides the money. Um, yeah. The, the, that NDA made sure that those cases, uh, sexual assault, murder, kidnapping, are taken out of the victim and alleged perpetrator's chain of command, as you mentioned, 
um, and creates a in the future at least an independent special trial council for those sorts of things of military prosecutors will take those things on and as you mentioned it made it made it a standalone offense in the uniform code of commercial justice so you know really kind of all important things in a number of fronts and in one of the senators who's been pushing on this issue of sexual harassment and assault in the military for a long time is senator Kristen gillibrand out of new york and she voted against it. Can you tell us why she did? Yeah, yeah. So this is where, you know, why I kind of have a little bit of caution, uh, of my, like cautious optimism. So, you know, while there's a lot of great things that have come out of the NDAA in this regard, there's still a lot of authority that commanders wield. Um, for instance, you know, you commanders can select court members. They can approve or deny immunity requests. They're in charge of hiring expert witnesses and consultants and really kind of the thing that stands out to, you know, like, you know, lawmakers and then somebody like me is the fact that commanders can also still stop any prosecution simply by allowing uh, the accused to separate from service rather than face a court martial. And and, you know, that's pretty that's pretty incredible if you think about it. Uh, and you'd like to think that that kind of activity would never happen. Um, but the unfortunate truth is that it definitely could and probably has happened a few times. Oh, no, um, no doubt. And, and that's why tying it back to the court martial of Major General Cooley uh, at that level. You know, a lot of times in the past, I'm sure that it was a wink and a nod and, and somebody would have said, hey, Bill. You know, if you want to retire with uh, both stars, you got you got to just put in your retirement papers. Otherwise, you're going to get hung up in this. And uh, so there, there is there's a cautious optimism, but you know, there's some hope too. I think that's what you're trying yeah. to say. Yeah, definitely. And I think the more that you know, people, you know, former service members and current service members step forward and you know tell their stories, and the more that you know. Journalists do the same. Um, I think that we'll get there. I think it's just going to take some time. You know, the, the military is a wonderful place and it gave me so many wonderful gifts. Uh, but in a lot of ways, and like anybody that reads my articles knows that I can be rather critical of the Department of Defense as well. Uh, it exists in its own bubble. And in some ways, there's, you know, a, a real reason for it. You know, the profession of arms is unlike any other profession on the planet and requires a different set of rules in many respects. Uh, but in some ways, it is to the detriment of service members um, and often to female service members and like your lower enlisted rank service members who just don't have a voice to amplify. Well, Kat Anderson, if people want to hear your voice or want to uh, reach out and comment on some of your articles, um, where would you direct them? Yeah, well, you know, first I would, you know, direct them to the Political Insider. Uh, I, I am not the only writer for the Political Insider. There's tons of just really great content out there, especially if you want to be able to kind of see some stories that you might not see as well. So, yeah, the politicalinsider.com is is where I write. And then also, uh, you know, I, I post fairly regularly on Twitter. I know Twitter, uh, <laughs> but who knows? Maybe Twitter is going to be exciting now with Elon Musk taking over. Uh, so uh, I'd love for people to follow me on Twitter. I'm at K-A-T 
B-E-A-U-V-I-C. And um, yeah, that's that's a great place to to find my articles and then just some other random musings I sometimes put out into the Twitterverse. <laughs> well, I, I enjoyed the articles. I did think it was, uh, you know, you were giving a, a good, clear perspective, uh, something that sometimes when you read uh, more mainstream things, you, you feel they're throwing punches left or right or holding their punches. Uh, but I appreciated uh the uh, the clarity and opinions that uh, you gave here, and I, I look forward to some more of them, and I, I suspect sooner or later you'll end up writing one on Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a huge fan, so I've even done an article. My mom was so excited, she said, I bet you Elon Musk is going to comment. He hasn't yet. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed our, our discussions with uh, Senior Master Sergeant Retired from the Air Force, Kat Anderson. Uh, lots of opinions, and that's what you want in an opinion writer, and with Lieutenant Colonel John Founce on what he saw in NATO and Ukraine. So I'm Jim Fossone, your host and producer here. We're coming to the end. We appreciate you always uh, listening in to Veterans Radio. And if you have any comments or suggestions, please go to veteransradio.net. You can send them to me, Jim, at veteransradio.net. And uh, we look forward to bringing you a new story, uh, uh, new information next week uh, as we come to you. And you can always find us on the Internet uh, 24-7, so please do. And until next time, you are dismissed.